Welcome to the Starting Accounting Practice Podcast with Zinni Me. This is Miranda here, and I could not be more excited and kind of stunned that we have Elliot Connie, the international speaker and author and evolution of psychotherapy trainer here talking about solution-focused grief therapy, but more importantly, his starting accounting practice journey. I know a lot of times we look at these amazing people that are up at the top and we think, wow, how did they get there? How did, how does that work? And is that really something that someone like me could do? And I hope that today's conversation really inspires you and delights you um, to know that there are lots of ways to build a private practice that is uniquely your own. Elliot, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So I love starting um, our podcast with this question. Uh, In a minute or less, why did you decide to become a therapist? Because I think suffering is unnecessary. And I wanted to get a job where I can contribute to the removal of people's suffering. And my first thought about that job was actually an LCDC. And then someone, someone told me, well, if you got a, if you became a counselor, you can do LCDC things and other things, because I was thinking about helping people who struggled with addiction. So that was actually what started it. Fantastic. And then from the point that you were like, I'm going to become a therapist and to the point that you are actually a therapist, how many years did it take you? Uh, three. Three. So you were pretty efficient. Well, yeah, because like, I don't come from you know, a lot of people go into their undergrad years, like I'm getting this undergrad degree so I can go to graduate school and become a psychotherapist. I was getting an undergrad degree so I could have an undergrad degree. And, and people were like, you can't make any money with a psychology degree. And I would look online and there would be jobs that paid like $24,000 a year. And I come from such a super poor background. I was like two grand a month is a ton of money. Uh, so I was just super happy to get a job with a degree. The, the desire to become a counselor happened after I had my psychology degree already. Hmm. I, I love, I, I really do love that, that transition of, wow, this seemed like a lot of money at the time to be so severely uh, underpaid because you came from a place where like, that just feels like a lot. Yes. $24,000. I could live off of two grand a month. And you're like, I, I can, in my sleep, <laughs> these yeah. are the pieces. 23-year-old Elliot thought 24 grand was like rolling in dough. <laughs> 23-year-old me. I mean, my, my rent was $275 a month. And I was pretty like, yeah, no, I, I lived on <laughs> less than that at 23 years old, so- for sure. Yeah. I thought I was was killing it, man. I thought I was, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly see the life I currently live back then. Right. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? How things, how things shift. And then um, from, at what point did you decide that private practice was the path for you? You know, so that's funny. I, so I got a job making right at about $20,000 a year. And I hated it. <laughs> Actually, mm-hmm. I was working at a halfway house for for youth. See, here in Texas, 
if you're a youth and you commit a crime, they send you to something called Texas Youth Commission, mm -hmm. TYC, which mm -hmm. is basically youth prison. Mm -hmm. And if your crime was the type of crime where you can't go back home after you get out of youth prison, then you go to a halfway house until you turn 21 and then you're like released into society. Wow. And I had the worst boss experience ever. Like this woman was like the meanest boss mm -hmm. ever there's there's that what's that movie that hilarious movie called the mean boss or something I yeah think. i think that might be it with jennifer aniston and they yeah yeah it's yeah. hilarious <laughs> i was like my boss back then was a combination of all of the bosses you see in that movie um oh. so i left that job mm -hmm. and i went and worked at another job which was great because then i got a, a pay raise at this new job to $27,500 a year. And I was like, whoa, ah! like the kid is balling. And um, I loved that job actually, because that was a job where I fell in love with working with clients. Mm. And that was actually the job where I started thinking about becoming a psychotherapist. Like back then I was just a caseworker mm -hmm. uh, at a social service agency in Fort Worth, Texas. And I had, I just started dreaming about having a bigger impact on people's lives. And I went to graduate school. And when I got my graduate degree, that job, I was now eligible to stay at that agency and get another job. Mm -hmm. But that's when I learned, that's when I learned that agencies dictate practice. Mm -hmm. So like this, this therapy practice, this uh, agency wanted me to do CBT. And by that time, I was very interested in solution-focused brief therapy and I, I not only did I want to practice solution focused brief therapy, but I wanted freedom. Like I, I just got a graduate degree. I want yeah. to be able to do this job the way I want to do this job. And you mm -hmm. guys are trying to tell me how to do this job. And I didn't like being told how to do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I had an, inc an incident happen where um, I was uh, trying to remember because it's been so many years. So I'm doing solution focused and I'm working for a drug court, which is a really cool program, right? Like these kids yeah. who get arrested with a drug charge, if it's their first offense, then they go through this drug court program. And if they successfully graduate, then the charge is removed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it was really cool because a lot of these kids get in trouble just because they're, you know, 14 years old and stupid. Yeah. So um, one day I go to work and my boss says, uh, can you come into my office? And I was like, sure. And she said, the judge from the drug court just called. Uh, and she said, over the last 12 months, 100% of the kids you've worked with have successfully graduated from this program and thus didn't go to, to Texas youth prison. Yes. Um, and she said, the other 18 therapists who are working in this drug court program have about a 50% success rate. So the judge just called and wants to know why is Elliot Connie an outlier? And Miranda, I got so excited because I'm like, oh, I'm yes. going to get something about solution-focused therapy. I'm going to tell them what I'm doing. Yes. So she said, we need to schedule a meeting with, to like talk to you about your status as an outlier. And I was like, great. So You're later like, on that week. Like, I'm going to teach other people. We're going to get everybody from 50% to 75 or hundred percent, like, yes, I can do this. That's right. And I, I thought, I thought 
I'm going to get to share what I'm doing. Like, how exciting is this? So a few days later, um, the meeting comes and I walk in and I see my boss, her boss, and his boss. And they had a look on their face that I instantly knew this is not going to be good. Mm. And if you think about it, like, think about what we currently describe as like social justice change, which is not really a phrase we had back then. Most of the kids going through this drug court program are underprivileged people of color from really difficult areas in and around Fort Worth, Texas. So I'm doing work that's keeping those kids out of the system. Yes. And as that, as we now know, one of the best ways to, to create an adult offender is to create a youth offender. Yes. And I was helping these kids not become offenders and I was so excited about it. And then my boss tells me in this meeting, she said, Elliot, we have a like $7.6 million grant over the next five years to deliver cognitive behavioral therapy to the drug court program. And your work is jeopardizing this contract. So we need you to stop doing solution-focused therapy. And I was like, what? And she said, to be honest with you, I'm sick of hearing about it. And I couldn't believe it. I was just like stunned. And um, in my shock and awe, I was like, you would rather preserve this grant than actually help people. And I had, so that was the like clinic director and her boss and then his boss. My direct supervisor was this wonderful woman named Elena. And I went and talked to Elena. I literally, I left that office. I went out in the parking lot and I was just like, what just happened? And Elena came outside and I told her, like, I don't know if I can stay here. And the yeah. next week I resigned. Yeah. And then I went and worked at another agency because, and I'm sure people listening to this, the decision to open your own business is a big and scary decision. Yeah. But that was when I started realizing I wanted freedom. I went and worked at another agency and encountered another environment when I was just like, I think the only way I'm going to be able to, make, be able to make this work is to go do it on my own. And which was really scary. Like I don't come from a family of business people. I didn't know where to, how do you start an LLC and how do you find an office and what's too much rent and how, how do you get clients? I didn't know the answers to any of that stuff. Yeah. But what I knew was I'm going crazy working for other people who are trying to dictate how I did what I wanted to do. And they didn't seem to have the same value system I had, which is I wanted to actually help people. Um, yes, I did. I literally just took a leap. I was just like, all right, I'm, I'm going to get an office and I'm just going to figure this shit out. And that's what I did. At that, I mean, this is the, the piece, right? Is that there are so many people having experiences just like you did, where they just want the freedom to help people and look at the obstacles people are putting in their way. Instead of that person seeing while we have the $7.6 million grant and the best way for us to secure that grant is to keep getting these kinds of outcomes. So we're going to make an adjustment because this judge is so happy with what we're doing, like that they didn't see the, the bigger picture. And again, kept a systemic, uh, a systemic program that was putting more people into the system. 
putting more people into youth prison, putting more people into adult prison, and that that was the place. And I just want to also just say like how impressive for you at that age and at that stage to step out in alignment with your values, um, not knowing what the hell (laughs) was going on and to say, no, it's, it's just not okay. It's just not okay. And I will, I, I believe in myself and I have faith that some, that if I align with my values, I can learn the skills that I need so that I can do more good in the world. Absolutely true. Cause one of the things that I knew was like, I can have all of the money in the world and I can have all of the like status and privilege that comes along with a great job. But if that job is not aligned with my values, I'm going to be miserable. So for me, the first step of choosing a, a career or, or a job or in anything that works for you is making sure that it aligns with your values. Yeah. Um, so I knew this is not working for me and I need to do this in a way that works for me. And even if it fails, at least I did it as me. Yeah. It's, I, I just think there are so many people listening to this podcast who have had these kinds of experiences and have felt stuck in it. And I know I had those experiences too. I actually got um, a review where somebody put, I was like a dog with a bone in my actual like review comments, because I said, what we're doing here is illegal. (laughs) And I was like, no, like, I just don't like, we're opening yourself up to liability. Like this is actually illegal. And like, Hey, I have a camp. I have a membership where we can talk to a lawyer for free. Like, let's talk to the lawyer. And the lawyer is like, yeah, no, that's illegal. Um, and they're like, well, everyone else is doing it. And I was like, but it's illegal. (laughs) It's making like, it's opening me up. Like, this is really scary and it's not good for the clients because ultimately we're working in the psychiatric hospital where there's an incredibly high need for quality care and people were not being supported. They had all these pre-licensed people who were not actually being taught how to do good crisis work in the hospital who were just coming straight out of school and going in and just sort of like having conversations with people and hoping they got better. And I'm like, this is not how we do it. We actually need supervision. We actually need clinical training. This doesn't make any sense at all. And that's, I mean, that's, uh, it's so crazy. And that's continuing to happen today. I know. Okay. So tell me about that first that first three months in private practice, you opened up the office, you started down the path. What did that look like? You know, it was, it was crazy. And I, it's funny. I haven't thought about this in a while. So just like thinking about it, it's even wonderful. So I found an office in Kel- well, at that agency, I met a friend who also wanted to leave the agency and we agreed to be roommates. Mm-hmm. And then we found an office, um, and I remember, I remember thinking, so the first thing I did is I remember sitting down and thinking like, how many clients do I need to meet my expenses? Yeah. And it was, I believe it was seven clients. I needed to do seven sessions a week mm-hmm. to cover my expenses. And then I thought I just picked a goal because I couldn't even imagine making a hundred thousand dollars of revenue. Yeah. So I was like, how many clients a week do I need to reach a hundred thousand dollars? Mm-hmm. And it was 17 at the time I was charging $120 an hour 
So I'd have to do 17 sessions a week to meet, to reach a hundred thousand dollars of total revenue. So I opened my office on September 4th of 2000. Can I, can I ask a question really yep. quick? Just yep. to interrupt. How many clients a week were you seeing at the agency or at those previous places? Like 30. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was seeing a lot. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, I just got to get, so I opened my office on September 4th. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent the month before building a website with this guy that ended up being a nightmare. But anyway, I had a website, I had some business cards and then September 4th comes and I see my first client, which I'll never forget. It was a woman who was a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember her handing me a check and being mm-hmm. like, this is a, like someone handed me money. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me doing therapy. Like I couldn't believe it, but I'll, I remember that feeling to this day. I wish I'd kept the check and not cashed it, but you know, I needed money back then. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so um, my first goal, like I didn't think it was realistic to try to get 17 clients a week, like overnight. Mm-hmm. So I thought it's September 4th, it's beginning of September. If I can have five clients on the last week of September, mm-hmm. then I'm on my way. And I made it. Mm-hmm. So five clients on the last week of September, I had five clients scheduled and I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, so I'll do that again. Let's see if I can have 10 clients by the mm-hmm. last week of October. Mm-hmm. And I made it. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, let me see if I can have 15 clients by the last week of November. So I thought if I can grow my, my average number of sessions by five each month, then I'm mm-hmm. on my way. And I did everything, man. I, mm. at the time, social media was this, this new thing. I remember posting in my space. Okay. You got me beat. Like I was like, I was oh, that wait. No, I, I never posted on my space. I, I, I remember putting, putting on my, my space page. Like if any of my friends know anybody, have them call me. Um, I didn't even have a Facebook page at the time. So I remember posting on MySpace. I took business cards to like every doctor's office in the area. I was doing a whole bunch of things and I just wanted to get, I wanted to increase the number of sessions I saw by the end of each month, right? So Mm -hmm. September got to five, October got to 10, November got to 15. So of course, by December, I wanted to get to 20. Mm -hmm. And the last week of December, of course, is like Christmas and New Year's. I had like two clients mm-hmm. and I thought I am dead. Like I literally, I spent three months building my practice and getting to a point where I'm doing okay monthly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then December happened and no one is calling a psychotherapist. No one is keeping their appointments. It, it was the first time I ever lost money. I was like, oh my God, my ex- I didn't reach the number to hit my expenses mm-hmm. in the month of December. And to be honest with you, Miranda, like I arrogantly thought in the previous three months, like, oh, I'm going to be able to do this. And it's going to be smooth and exciting and awesome. And I'm going to be on my way. Um, and then December happened and I thought I'm going to lose everything. Mm-hmm. And then January happened. And by the end of January, I think I had like 30 clients. Yeah. <laughs> and I realized, okay, there's an ebb and flow to this. Yeah. And that's when I knew I could, it took me four months to go through that process. But by the end of January, that's when I knew. I can do this or five months, I guess, but that's when I knew I could do it. It's, and I think it's such a, um, it's such a normal progression as a business owner 
And I would like to say too, like for a lot of people to be able to grow to 30 clients in five months is pretty exemplary. It's yeah. definitely, you were out there like hitting the pavements and really marketing yourselves, marketing yourself was. as you move forward. I absolutely was. And I, I think a lot of therapists, and here's the, the, the thing that I didn't struggle with that I noticed a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of therapists, number one, they use stupid phrases. Like, I just want to get my name out there. And I was like, that's just a dumb phrase because you don't want to get your name out there. You need to be very strategic and purposeful about where you get your name. For example, the, the friend I had that we shared rent, she was a play therapist. So rather than saying, I want to get my name out there, mm-hmm. she would go to like preschools. She would go to pediatricians and she mm-hmm. got to be successful even faster than I did because mm-hmm. she was very deliberate and strategic about where she took her marketing material. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that was me. Like I was a family therapist who focused on couples. So I went to local churches. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I think therapists get in trouble with is they start thinking it's hard to talk about myself in positive ways like it's hard to be like hi my name's Elliot I'm so awesome that you need to send me clients but that's not how you market what I would do is I would go to the family therapist I'm sorry the family physicians Mm -hmm. and I would say I know how to make your services better Mm -hmm. because if you do medicine there's research that says combining medicinal treatment with psychotherapy treatment makes your clients better. Mm-hmm. And I know how to, how to increase, like I can be a service to you, not just your mm-hmm. clients, but I can be a service to you. So when you describe yourself as like helpful to the business that you're marketing to, they were mm-hmm. much more likely to give out my cards. And I would say the same thing to the churches. I would, I would go to the church and I would say, I know that as a pastor, you counsel some of your parishioners, some of the people coming to your church. But I also know you occasionally meet people that it's beyond the scope of what you're comfortable helping. I can help the members of your church be happier, more healthy people. So anytime you're marketing, you have to be able to describe your services as helpful to the business that you're marketing to, not just helping the customers of that business. And that really helped ingratiate me, um, to the people I was marketing to. I think this is the piece is that a lot of therapists haven't been taught how to track their outcomes or to know if what they're doing is working. They have this like general sense that things are trending in the right direction. And it still blows my mind. We will teach therapists how to just have a conversation and ask the question, hey, how did you feel when you started therapy? How do you remember what that looked like? What does life look like now? What is different? And therapists are con- consistently blown away by what their clients tell them because they were never taught to ask, is what we're doing working? And that is just shocking to me. And what's really lovely is when therapists say, well, I don't, I don't know how it would be helpful to, I can't see the bigger picture. When they have these conversations, start to hear these, hear this with clients, then it starts to give them the words and the confidence to move forward. Because I think there is something about, well, the research shows this, but like, is that true for me? And when you have your clients saying, wow, I've been able to reduce my medication, my blood pressure is down, 
Um, you know, my endocrinologist is like absolutely impressed because they can see my stress levels down and now my autoimmune condition, like when you can have those conversations with your clients and let them teach you <laughs> what you're doing, right. But you have to have the conversations you need to really settle in and not be so scared to hear negative feedback that you also don't hear positive feedback. But that's, that's a hundred percent. The case is I think, I think so many people are afraid to hear negative feedback and they're, they're afraid of rejection, mm-hmm. but like literally if you're marketing a therapy practice, one referral source can fill your therapy practice. Yes. And you might, you might need to hear 32 no's before you hear the one yes that changes your life. And, and the person that I'm talking about, that was my, my roommate at the time, she was a play th- or is a play therapist now, even still, mm-hmm. but back then she was like a new play therapist in this area. And she brought her cards to like every preschool and every daycare and everywhere where children go. Mm-hmm. One pediatrician started referring her referring to her and six months later she was full like she was seeing 30 40 clients a week six months later based upon one referral source and she did a really good job at her job yeah um so i think therapists that are like afraid of rejection you got to get over that and understand i'm gonna hear a bunch of no's before i hear the yes that changes my life you're going to hear a bunch of no's and you're going to hear a bunch of radio silence. You're going to hear a bunch of, oh, I went and talked to these five people and I didn't hear anything of it. You're going to have to have multiple conversations with people. Um, And sometimes you're even going to, like I got an inadvertent, I was like horribly sick at a doctor's office and she's like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a therapist. You know, and she's like, oh my God, what kind of work? I just trauma, like, can you just, take care of me. Like, I don't want to talk about work right now, but I just look like death and just felt terrible. And she started, and because I wasn't really in the marketing space, she started referring all these people that, that needed Medicare. And in California, you have to be an LCSW to be able to, to be on a Medicare panel. So I couldn't do that. So she started referring like 10 clients a week to me that were all Medicare clients. And I had to like go back and be like, thank you for the referrals. I really appreciate it. But like, that's not me. Here's the person that you need, but there's going to be that piece. But when you allow yourself to build those relationships, when you allow yourself to have those conversations, it's going, it just makes, it doesn't just build up your practice. It means that the people who are really needing help, that they don't have to go and look all around that they go to whatever point, whether it is their doctor or it's their lawyer or it's their um, massage therapist or whomever it is. And they say, wow, I'm struggling with this. And they say, I know, I know how to help you. And there is something lovely as the provider as well for that other provider, for them to know exactly. They don't have to go and research it. They don't have to go and like do extra consultation for you to give them an easy referral in their hand that their clients will be happy with that is a win for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. And you have to be willing to do that work. And I think the other thing too, and I tell this to all the people, here's the best marketing ever. People think it's their website, Google ads, Facebook ads, but understanding what I'm about to say is literally game changing. And here's what it is. Like the fact that I'm even 
giving this away for free because what I'm about to say is game changing. Every therapist or every therapy client in the world that sees you for the first time, when they leave your office, someone that loves them is going to ask them, how was it? And it is your job to make that answer positive. Yeah. If that answer is positive, your therapy practice will thrive. If that answer is neutral or negative, that therapy, your therapy practice will not. So I, I did, I do a really cool type of psychotherapy and I'm a charismatic guy. So people would call my clients and say, how was it? And my client would say life-changing. And then that person would be like, then I need their number. And your practice grows organically. I remember, so I work with a lot of couples and it just so happens that, um, so in my office, there were in that building, there were four companies, four businesses. Mm -hmm. One of them was a uh, financial advisor and their window overlooked the parking lot. Mm -hmm. So after being in this office for, I don't know, three or four months, um, the, I was going out to check the mail and this woman who was a financial advisor, she was like, what do you do with your clients? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know why. And she said, because a lot of couples walk out of your office and they, and they stand next to their cars kissing after they leave your office. So that's what I mean. Like you have to make sure that the experience the client has in your office is positively impactful so that they go out into the world and and become your primary referral sources. And, and if you think about think about some of the prominent companies in this planet, like Rolex, how often do you see a Rolex commercial? They just make badass watches and they let they let the people who own the watches be the referral sources. Or how often do you see a Lamborghini commercial? They just make really dope cars and let the people who own those cars be the referral sources. And and the list goes on and on and on. The advertising actually isn't the strength. It's the word of mouth referrals. And I think therapists underestimate that. And they don't understand that every single client you've ever seen or ever will see, someone's going to ask them, how was that therapist? And it's your job to make sure that answer is transformative. And people aren't taught how to really bond and attach during that first session. They aren't taught. They are taught how to reduce liability. Let Here's my checklist of conversations and of questions that I need to check the boxes. And I need to make a diagnosis by the end so that somebody can get reimbursed by their insurance company or so that I can prove medical necessity. None of that is going to make your client happy them getting reimbursed by their insurance company doesn't really matter. Like at the end of the day, I always go back to this idea of like $5 is too much to pay for bad therapy. Like this idea of, well, I want to make it accessible. I want to make sure it gets reimbursed. That's all great and good. But if you do that as the focus of the session, instead of the transformation of the client and really connecting in with them and getting super clear about what they want to see happen, it, you're not going to grow. And ultimately people aren't going to stay sticky in therapy. And it's, it's fascinating to me. I've, I've taught for, for years. I've 
done do a consultation script and even walk people through like, here's what to do in initial session. And the fact that I would ask the miracle set, the miracle question in the first session, people were like, oh, so you're a short-term therapist. And I was like, no, I'm not a short-term therapist. I, I do chronic trauma work. It's kind of hard to do short-term. Some people can, that are magic, like Elliot Connie. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was not that person. I was not trained in that way. But to have like complete clarity of what the outcome this person was looking for and how I could again, in that first session, give them some transformation to move towards that and to shift into that state of being. Like, why is that relegated to, oh, well, you must be a this or you must be a that or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's really, I'm a person who sees someone in front of me that has chronic trauma that's in a lot of pain that's waited weeks or months or years to come into therapy. Don't they deserve to, no, I can't 100% magically transform your life in one session. I can't tell you probably can. I can't, but can I give you a transformation in that session? Absolutely. Absolutely. I can change your life. And if they keep coming to see me, I can help make sure that's six. <laughs> or, even, or even if the transformation is, I now have a ton of hope, like let's say, yes. and I don't know, I don't know if this is true or not, but let's say for example, for example, Miranda does the type of therapy where the first session is all intake. So Miranda's not even like giving therapeutic intervention in the first session. She's just doing all intake stuff. If Miranda is super likable and super charismatic and super connectable, the, th- the client is going to leave with no intervention, no level of change, but they're going to be like so hopeful. Like, oh my gosh, I love her. Like we didn't do anything, but I can't wait to start talking about the, the problem or the or the difficulty or the struggle or whatever, because I so love Miranda. And that's the point. I I think there is that. And if, if I as Miranda, right. Or this external Miranda, whomever she is, if Miranda even says, Oh my gosh, I have a thousand questions for you today. And this is going to be the most boring session of all of the sessions. It's going to be like, it's all the information. And I actually, I did a significant amount of stuff, but not all of it in the first session. But I would say, I'm going to ask you a ton of questions because I need to understand exactly where you're coming from to make sure that I give you the best treatment possible. Because if I don't understand where you're coming from, if I don't understand the big picture, then I could give you the wrong direction. And I want to make sure that this is helpful as quickly as possible. So asking all these questions really helps. I would even, for me and my, and my actual therapy practice, I would frame that in terms of the intake paperwork that I had them fill out. So I had them fill out a lot of questions before they came in. And I'd say, if you can do that before you come in, then we can really focus the session about you. So then I can read that information. I can have that. I can ask you some follow-up questions. And then we can really dig in in the first session. And people would so appreciate that place. of They knew why it was happening, why I was asking what I was asking, what the benefit was to them, and also that I was just as aligned and, and committed to this being transformative as they were. Right. Exactly right. Ah, okay. They're so right. let's talk about getting back to private practice. Solution focused brief therapy is brief therapy. Yes. And for a lot of that means that you have to attract a lot more clients to your practice. Tell me about like in a sense, right? Initially. Yes and no. Yes and no. But do you know what the modal number of therapy sessions clients attend? Um, I would say somewhere is probably like eight. One. 
Ooh. So regardless of what number of therapy sessions or regardless of what type of therapy you do, uh-huh. the modal number of therapy appointments a client attends is one. So I don't think I need any more referrals than the next person. Uh-huh. I think what I do as a result of doing solution-focused brief therapy well mm-hmm. is I take advantage of that one session. Mm-hmm. So whether the client comes back or not, they're out mm-hmm. in the world telling people, Elliot's really impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, because here's what happens most of the time, right? So um, so we're just going to take fictitious Miranda and 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 give her a horrible partner, for example, right? No, I'll even be even worse, Miranda. I'll make you the horrible partner. Yes, I'm excited. <laughs> okay, so here's what typically happens. So Miranda's in a relationship with Dan. He's really nice. Yeah, Dan's so a really scary. nice guy. Yeah. But Miranda has decided to cheat on Dan. And Miranda is like in love with this other person. And here's how people come to therapy. Dan says... I'm really mad. I hate that this happened. Um, I want to save this relationship. Will you come to therapy with me? And Miranda typically says no, because I'm in love with this other person over here. And then Dan begs and begs and begs. And Miranda says, fine, I'll go to one session. And then Miranda comes to one session. And then the, th- the clients do whatever they do post that one session. Mm-hmm. Therapists think that Miranda has agreed to therapy and she didn't. Mm-mm. she agreed to come to one session yeah it's my job as the therapist to be maximally impactful in that one session mm-hmm. and not make the assumption that Miranda has agreed to go through therapy because she likely hasn't mm-hmm. most people who agree to come to therapy they agree they agreed to come to therapy not to come and be in therapy yeah. and in case anybody hasn't noticed we're in an economy where if I said to Miranda, Miranda, I'm happy to help you, but you got to come to therapy once a week for the next 12 weeks. Miranda thinks, gosh, Elliot's fee is, I don't know, we'll just use the average here, but Elliot's fee is 120 bucks. And he wants to see me weekly. That's $480 a month for the next three months. We live in an economy where most people cannot afford $480 a month for the next three months. And We live in an environment where let's say Miranda and Dan have two children. Those two children are home 24 seven because of a pandemic. So now I have a childcare issue. Mm -hmm. I have a privacy issue because it's hard for me to do therapy when there's two kids running around. Mm -hmm. And now I have an expense issue. So we make the very privileged assumption that people can afford to come to therapy. They have the time to come to therapy. And, and then we make even a crazier assumption that if those things are true and they can't commit to therapy, that they're not motivated. And that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. That's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. There, there are confounding variables that make attending therapy almost impossible in our current landscape. And we have no right to judge people in that way. That everybody wants less suffering. Like ultimately. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I am in complete agreement with that. And I think it is, it's such a, um, it's such a fascinating piece. I remember being in the psychiatric hospital and having somebody like decline to, to sign a, a document, right? You just you push all this paperwork on people. 
And I went like, oh, you declined the sign. And he's, and he was like, can I see that piece of paper? I was like, sure. They're like, oh, you didn't say that I was refused to sign or that I was like that I, I basically I didn't say anything about this person that was negative because they didn't want to sign this piece of paper. And I think there's something about that whole space of really knowing where people are at and having that conversation and knowing too that having an interaction is going that is really transformative is going to open up people's worlds. And yep. sometimes that opens them up to creating more space for therapy. Sometimes it's just what they need to get in the right direction and start moving where they need to move. And maybe that is all they need is one session. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think we have to understand that one session is often all people need. And even the people out there listening, if you think about, think about the most impactful things that have ever happened in your life, it was usually just like a moment, right? It was mm -hmm. just like, like you working with Kelly, your life has probably not been the same since you started working with Kelly. Mm -hmm. And the moment you met Kelly, however that happened, is like the moment your life changed. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize that people's lives change, people's lives change in moments, mm -hmm. not in like stages of therapy. You know what I mean? Like, like people's <laughs> lives change people's lives change in in moments right it's like you know I was walking to the store and I happened to get in line behind this woman turns out her name is Kelly and we've gone on to run a business together da 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 or whatever it was yeah. or or like maybe you met Kelly your senior year in high school just because the seating chart of that teacher put you guys next to one another or whatever it might be but people's lives change in circumstances and in moments and when people say like, Ellie, do you think therapy can actually be successful in one session? Absolutely, because life's change in moments. That's yeah. how life happens. Yes. I am so delighted. I just want to do a shout out. How many of you guys listen to this podcast right now are stoked to have Elliot Connie, this amazing world-renowned speaker coming to speak with us, free training with a CE talking about how to integrate and use solution-focused brief therapy as, as a tool in your tool belt as part of your private practice. Like, holy hell. I, I just feel so lucky that we were able to thank you, Elliot, to come and speak. Happy to do it. I think it's going to inspire a lot of people. And I will also say, um, I, I, I will say there are there are environments all throughout. There are a lot of people who are that, long-term therapy is an access is not accessible and there are people that are where it is accessible where that's where they're wanting and desiring and so for those of you who are listening going well wait does that mean i can't start a private practice unless i only do solution focused brief therapy no there are lots of ways to help there are lots of modalities out there but i think it is important to explore and and see other ways that we can increase accessibility and meet clients where they are at. And ultimately that everybody, I'm, I'm in complete agreement, everybody who walks into your, into your office should have a transformation. And even if you are someone who <clears throat> solution focused is not your thing, that you tend to do longer term therapy. If somebody comes into your set, into your office and all you do is help them figure out where they should actually be, and it's not your office, that is transformative. 
right? Like if somebody comes in and says, here's what I'm really looking for. This is what I'm doing. You're like, oh my gosh, here's the, here's the right person. I think this could be really helpful. Yeah. You probably don't need to do that. You probably don't need this kind of therapy. Like here's the piece, but someone just gets directed. I think of that as a win as well. Like at the end of the day, everything's a win where that client leaves going. Yes. I know what my next step is not like, oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. All right. I did the thing. I did the thing. And I I do think it's interesting too, that I'm with you, that the amount of people, when I teach people how to do consultation scripts on the phone, whenever I do couples, I would do consultations with both parties. And it was only an agreement to doing one session. And it was specifically at the end of the session, we'll have a conversation about whether you guys want to actually enter therapy. So it was a consultation on the phone, then a consultation in person, and then deciding if we're actually going to do couples work, because I'm totally with you in that, that this assumption that everybody is like ready and willing to like do the work. And ultimately, you know what else that did? It cut down on my no shows for couples because (laughs) you would get one person calling to schedule and the other person saying, okay. And then later on going, I don't know who the hell this person is. I'm not really, you know, I'm not really in on this. I'm not, I'm, I don't know if this person's going to think I'm a jerk or they're already on this other person's side. And so they end up not even showing up to therapy. So we'll also throw out that place of let's be transformative and be really thoughtful, even in how we do those consultation sessions um, before people even get in the room to really engage both parties and let them know what's going to happen and what's not in that first session. Yeah. Maximize the time you have with people. Yeah. Um, I never did a consultation session, but what I was very good at mm-hmm. was maximizing the time I had. So yeah. um, I think when people came to therapy, they were ready to work and I treated them like we were going to do work and I did transformative work. So what would happen is people would be like, either I got enough from this one session or I'm much more interested now in coming back. I cannot yeah. tell you how many times I've seen reluctant people become yeah. engaged in yes. minutes. Yes. And, and I think, I think that's, we owe them that. Like, I think that's what we need to do. I think that's, it goes back to that stages of change that we expect people to come in in an action phase and like, okay, I'm ready to work. And often sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't, but like that movement you're talking about, here's how I engaged people and moved everybody into that space and really treated them like in the space of like, Hey, I'm here for you. I'm aligned with you. We're on the same page. That's like, right. let's figure it out. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I know I've kept you on for like so much longer than (laughs) (laughs) is there. I hope this story has inspired all of you who are listening and watching. Come and join us. It's July the 6th, July the 6th of 2021. Come and watch. It will be recorded, um, the training, but it'll only be available for a week to the public because we want you to actually take action, right, Elliot? not just put it off and say, yeah, I'll watch that someday in the future and we'll never actually do it. So true. Deadlines create action. (laughs) Elliot, what is your, um, anything that you want to leave our audience with our listeners with as a little bit of just, I appreciate everybody listening. Uh, Miranda, I appreciate Zenny me inviting me to do this. And I hope anything I've said has inspired someone Uh, to take action and live their dreams. If you're scared, do it scared. Uh, But 
but do it, take action. You can, we need more therapists in private practice right now. We need more accessibility. We need more different people doing different things out in the world because there's a client out there that you are uniquely qualified to help and support and transform your life. And um, one of my favorite things that Kelly um, talks about is that idea of therapy really changing family trees that you're, you can make a transformation in a relationship, in a family, in an individual that's going to ripple out and impact so many people. So go out there and make an impact therapist. 100%.